The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. The shepherds hurried away to Bethlehem and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw the child, they repeated what they had been told about him, and everyone who heard it was astonished at what the shepherds had to say. As for Mary, she treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was exactly as they had been told. When the eighth day came and the child was to be circumcised, they gave him the name Jesus, the name the angel had given him before his conception. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, Merry Christmas. I'm not going to get sick of saying that because I think we need to claim it. You know, this is our season of um, unbounded joy. And, and on that note, friends, the holy mystery of Christmas is far from unwrapped and unraveled. So please continue to return to this gift and, and open it up. Um, see the wonder of God being given completely to us. I have to say, you know, liturgically we try and mark sol- solemn occasions by, by the way our church celebrates. And there's only two occasions in, in, the, in the modern liturgy where there's an octave, an eight-day-long day. One is Easter and the other is Christmas. And they're, they're so, it's so important. I was struck by the feasts that fall within the Christmas octave. You'd think it's a time of wonderful joy and peace and everything we, we are hearing about in these readings. But the feasts were a, a total juxtaposition, weren't they? If you notice, the first was Stephen then John the Apostle, and then the Holy Innocents. What's Stephen's story? Well, he was stoned to death for, for talking about Jesus, basically, saying who he was and what happened to him. Um, right the day after Christmas, you've got this horrendous martyrdom. It kind of sets the tone of Christianity thereafter. <laughs> um, then you've got John the Apostle. Now, John's got a pretty wonderful story, but the gospel for that day was Mary outside the tomb. You think... Is the church confused? Like, did it get the wrong, just pick the wrong reading by accident? And finally, the holy innocence. And we've all seen those images of just piles of, of children who are, do- who are killed for the sake of being in the vicinity of Jesus. You know, they're this, roughly the same age, roughly in the same region. Yeah, the, the hunt for Christ has begun. This is what the church puts in our mind. It's, it's staggering, isn't it? But I think... In, in a beautiful way, it names a reality that perhaps all of us are touching upon. That right in the midst of Christmas, which oftentimes is a, is a kind of messy, time-poor time, think of Mary and Joseph looking for somewhere just to birth the child, there's suffering, and there's doubt, and there's everything dark you can imagine. It's into the thickest dark that the light of the world emerges, back then and now for all of those families who are grieving the death of a loved one in the past you know, week, for all the families who have someone you know, who's struggling with mental illness and they're just in an abyss of pain, for all of the people who are estranged and they're just celebrating Christmas alone. Good, the church 
in its very liturgy, surrounds them and says, yes, that is the story of Christmas. Today we celebrate an ancient solemnity. It's Mary, Mother of God. This is an ancient title that Mary has had um, since the Council of Ephesus. It's been solidified in the, in the dogma of the church. You, know, you might have heard of the Nestorian heresy where they were saying, no, Mary is the mother of Jesus, his humanity. She's the Christ bearer. But you can't call her the God bearer. You can't call her Theotokos. And the church, with its official stamp of approval, said, yes, we can, <laughs> and we will, and we are, because, because God became flesh. Otherwise, what are we celebrating here? God himself, hiding nothing of his divinity from us, has entered now perfectly into the human story, so that God is my brother. God comes to wash our feet. God comes to do all those horrendous things that almost offend us, they're so loving. Yes, the church says, that is who Mary birthed. Thank you. We will celebrate God with us and not just some, um, some person who speaks on his behalf. So calling Mary mother of God is an ancient thing and we can look into that if we'd like. But I have to say, the reading that we're given here um, is curious. You know, of all the things we could have heard, like some Marian prophecy, you know, like the, the Song of Hannah or something like that, something with at least a woman in there <laughs> would, be, would be logical. But that's not what we hear. We hear this, this obscure reference from Numbers. Like, like of all the books, this is probably the one everyone stops reading the Bible at because it's just literally Numbers, like a lot of them. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Say to Aaron, your brother, who, who, who gives a priestly line to the house of Israel, Say to Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the sons of Israel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We're familiar with this blessing. We, we, we come to it often. What's so special about this blessing? Why are we hearing it now on the Feast of the Mother of God, on the cusp of a new year? At one level, and don't take this the wrong way, but it seems quite repetitive and quite almost boring, you know? Uh, it's kind of like A, B, A, B, A, B. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord uncover his face and may he bring you peace. It's like, it almost says the same thing three times, doesn't it? But as usual in scripture, when God repeats himself, it's not because he ran out of ideas, it's because he's impelling us to look closer, to look again, to hear again. Um, the literal meaning of the word respect, respectare, is to look and to look again, to warrant someone a second glance. Yeah, sure, I didn't, I didn't catch the whole story the first time. So let's respect this blessing. What are we hearing here? May the Lord bless you and let his face shine on you and may he uncover his face to you. And the instruction concludes, this is how they, the priestly people for the sake of Israel, are to call down my name and I will bless them. Now, I don't want anyone to, to complain to the bishop about this because I'm not saying that this is a Trinitarian formula like in our baptisms, but for a second, Let's just suppose that it is a Trinitarian formula, such as we have in our rituals. Hear this. What would be more fitting than to call down the Father's blessing, that's the first part, to see the radiant face of the Son, who, who plainly says, I'm the image of the unseen God, so if you see me, you see the Father, to, to behold that radiant face, and then to have the Holy Spirit increasingly unveil the radiance of Christ 
upon us and upon everyone we meet. It's got a sort of natural Trinitarian logic to it, doesn't it? When you just think of the Gospels and what Jesus has done for us. Furthermore, what would be more complete a prayer intention for any of us to have than for the Eternal Father to keep us in the, in the fullest sense, to keep us to His bosom, you know, in His care? For the Lord Jesus to be gracious to us, and think of, think of what He did to Mary, full of grace, like to be graced by God is not a small thing. And then finally, for the Holy Spirit to be precisely that gift which Jesus promised um, before His passion and then after His passion, the gift of peace. Eventually, He breathed this on His apostles in the upper room, and from there forward, upon the whole world, from the lungs of the church, from us, this Holy Spirit continues to move and move us. It's quite powerful, isn't it? In fact, it's, it's a rich and a beautiful and, in some ways, an all-encompassing prayer. I want to say, without getting too caught up in the, in the Scriptures, this psalm enriches it even further. Why ultimately, I think it's worth asking um, as we begin a new year, why do we pray? You know, what is prayer for us, people of faith? What's the point of it? What's the process of it? What are the mechanics of it? How does it, how does it work? There are many unhelpful images of prayer which lock us in a kind of spiritual stalemate. You know, it's, it's like we're talking to a wall or we're talking to ourselves. This can't be prayer. If prayer is merely a kind of withdrawal from the great big bank of God's account of love, which is great, but if that's all it is, just me making a, making a withdrawal, God's like a big ATM. That's not a good image of prayer. Um, if prayer is a kind of echo chamber for positive self-talk, you know, words of affirmation, words of consolation, happy emotions, then God is like a big gratitude journal. Gratitude journals are great, you know, get one if, if it helps. But that can't be ultimately what our prayer is. Finally, if God is a kind of perfunctory practice once or twice a year, or when we're in the right company, think of those situations where we think, oh, we better, we better pray, so-and-so is watching. <laughs> um, well, then God becomes like the fancy set of crockery that we bring out when we're having really nice dinners. See what I'm saying here? God can't be objectified in these, in these cheap ways because the relationship that we're to have with God then deteriorates um, immediately. One cannot have a genuine relationship with an ATM or a journal or a set of crockery. One can only use these things for their functional purpose, whatever exactly they do for us, and then you get on with life. Um, you put them away. God precisely cannot be put away in that fashion because God is not one functional thing. He's not just something that serves a particular need. He, he doesn't just make life easier. God, in fact, is life. God is the life we're living. This is why we hear in the book of Hebrews and in Acts, it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. We're, we're, we're sort of immersed in, in Christ at all times and in God. Moreover, the God who is life doesn't merely want to bless us, you know, give us something and, and, then, and then we move on, you know. Um, he also wants you, me, to know Him. Now just listen to this. To know Him as profoundly as He knows us. Yes, that's part of God's intention. Just think about that. God is omniscient. He knows everything about everything. 
and he wants you and I to know him as profoundly, as intimately as he knows us, which is not possible unless he bridges that gap, unless he sort of completely lays himself bare. We can't pursue such a God, but he has to pursue us and then make, make it possible for us. You might remember that line in Revelation where it says, um, we will see him as he really is, you know, without any, without any kind of alloy to, 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 to shield us from, from the glory of it. And when we know him like that, we'll, we'll see ourselves as well. Why else would Jesus introduce God to us as Abba, Father, as we heard in that second reading in Galatians? Abba. It's such an intimate way of, of a child addressing their, their dad. When I was in the Holy Land, I heard the little kids and they're walking around with their parents and saying, Abba, Abba. It's an intimate, it's like daddy, you know, it's such an intimate childlike way of, of engaging with God. Jesus could have given us any word and he chose that. Our God is an intimate God. Why else would this God throw, our, throw his utter transcendence out the window and take on flesh? You know, the most humble vesture you can, you can think of. He never ceases to be God, but he does continually lessen the seeming gap between us. Think of those words that Jesus said to his apostles, I no longer call you servants, but I, because a servant does not know the master's business. I call you friends, friends, intimate. And in fact, even closer than that, adopted sons and daughters. We're, we're now in the bloodline, you know? Why? Because he continues, I've made known to you everything I learned from my father. All of this comes out of chapter 15 of, of John's Gospel, where he's talking about the vine. You know, it's the same intimacy. I'm the vine, you're the branches. We couldn't be closer even if we wanted to be. That's what Jesus wants. So what is prayer then? As Teresa of Avila put it, prayer is a conversation between friends. If I can invite us to make one simple New Year's resolution, it's to enter into this familial, conversational time wasted with our God, who desires, who loves to waste time with each of us.